You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image, and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things, That you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I know them. You have never heard. You have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now, The Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. 
their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. This is God's word. We are in the book of Isaiah. If you're relatively new, uh, we've been making our way through this excellent Old Testament prophetic book all year long. And so that's where we are. And we're in chapter 48, as you just heard read. There is much for us to learn. There's much more for us to see, even in the book of Isaiah, than we can tackle from week to week. And so I trust that your reading of this book is uh, paying dividends even in your own life as you just begin to learn more about God. I brought along this morning a picture that is in my study of my wife and I uh, on our honeymoon at the Continental Divide, elevation 8391. This is in Yellowstone National Park. Um... And this was our first visit to the Continental Divide. Now, as you know, the Continental Divide is is the major hydrological divide of the continent. That means all the rain and water that falls to the west of the Continental Divide goes toward the Pacific Ocean. All the water that falls to the east of the Continental Divide goes toward the Atlantic Ocean. And so it, it sort of divides the waters in terms of where they end up. The significant thing about the Continental Divide is It just is. It's there. And wherever the water falls, that divide determines which way the water goes. I want to submit to you this morning that Isaiah 48 is a continental divide in our thinking about God. The the truth in Isaiah 48 just is. And how we respond to and interact with this truth determines largely whether the waters of our soul flow toward defeat and despair and discouragement or whether the waters of our soul flow toward life and joy and freedom. This is a significant section of Scripture. It is in every way a theological sort of continental divide. And so let me set the stage for you before we go to Isaiah 48. Let me remind you of where we are in the flow of the story. We've been looking for the past few weeks at God's promise to redeem or deliver his people from Babylon. The people are in exile in the city of Babylon. God has told his people that he's going to raise up Cyrus, the Persian king, and that king is going to conquer and defeat the city of Babylon and free the people to return to their homeland of Jerusalem. And God has said repeatedly, This is why you should trust me, because I'm telling you that I'm going to do this, and I'm going to bring it to pass. I'm predicting what's going to happen, and I'm going to deliver on those predictions. And when you see this happen, when you realize I said it was going to happen, and then I did it, that should inspire you then to trust me. And by contrast, as Pastor Eric Raymond so masterfully preached last week, idols are dumb. They can't speak, they can't hear, they can't act, they can't deliver you. They are gods that you make instead of the God that made you. And so in contrast to the impotence of idols, 
I am the God who acts and who can deliver my people. And so that's sort of what God's been saying over the past few chapters of Isaiah. And at the same time, we've been catching hints that deliverance from Babylon is not the same thing as deliverance from sin. Isaiah's been saying to us, this deliverance is a mini deliverance that points to something greater. Cyrus is a small s servant, a small m Messiah who accomplishes a short-term limited deliverance that foreshadows a greater servant, a greater Messiah who will accomplish a long-term eternal deliverance. Isaiah has been hinting in this direction. And in chapter 48, this tension finally bubbles to the surface. The tension between a people who have been delivered from physical captivity, but not from spiritual captivity. We see in Isaiah 48, a people who are free from Babylon, and yet not free from sin. They have a new set of circumstances, but not a new heart. And Isaiah wants us to see this problem because what he's going to do for the next few chapters from now until chapter 55 is he's going to lay out God's solution to that problem. He's going to point us to the servant, the Messiah, the one who is to come, who will fully and finally deliver us from sin. And so in chapter 48, Babylon fades into the background. Babylon is never mentioned again. Now, all the language of captivity and oppression is all spiritual language because Isaiah wants you to say, yeah, yeah, the deliverance from Babylon was important, but it's not ultimate. And so we see here in 48, we're confronted with a people who are delivered physically, but not delivered spiritually. Let's take a look at how we see this. Isaiah 48, verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob. God, throughout this, sentence, this section, is relentless about our need to hear, to listen, to heed his word. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel, The Lord of hosts is his name. So notice all this language of calling. They say they're my people. They claim my name, but not in truth or right. Verse 3. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate. And your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. This is God's description of his people. Not entirely flattering, right? Have you been around a toddler throwing a tantrum lately? You seen what happens? Like when a, when a toddler gets really angry, right? The neck gets really stiff. They stiffen up their body. You're not going to move me. I'm angry. I'm going to prove it by my nonverbal expressions, right? God's saying... This is what you're like. This this people whom I've delivered, they're obstinate, they're stiff-necked. Your neck is like an iron sinew. Verse 5, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. So despite all of God's talk about the foolishness of idolatry, he's saying, here's what I know about you. I know that as soon as I deliver you, you're going to give credit to your false gods. 
Verse 8, you have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. And then we go to the end of the chapter, verses 20 through 22. Here you see the distinction, okay? Verse 20. Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth and say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. This is the language of going forth from Babylon, right? They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from them for the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. It's looking back to the Exodus. And this is a new Exodus. But look at verse 22. Here's how the chapter ends. Despite that, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, but there's no peace for the wicked. Your temporal, physical deliverance is not the same thing as the sense of peace that comes from the removal of wickedness. And so the last word that's said about God's people in chapter 48 is the word wicked. Why does God tolerate a people like this? Isn't this one of the questions you have as you read the Bible? I was like, what? <laughs> if God's going for like maximum publicity for his name, why these people? Not just these people, but why any of the people in the Bible, right? Doesn't it seem that they consistently rebel, are selfish, are foolish? Why does God put up with stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious people? And, and you know if you have a little bit of humility, right, that you're kind of the same way. You could, you could ask the question, why does God put up with you? Why does God put up with me? This is not just God's people in the Old Testament. This is God's people throughout all time. Why does God put up with this? The answer is right here in the middle of chapter 48. And the answer is itself the continental divide that I'm talking about. It's, it's the secret of grace. The answer to why God puts up with stubborn, rebellious people is the truth that will either free you from captivity into freedom and joy and peace and satisfaction, or that if you failed to grasp it, will keep you in a different place in your soul. The truth that God gives us that answers the question, why? Why does he put up with this kind of people is in verse 9, 10, and 11, right in the center of this chapter. Look at it with me. God says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So notice the parallelism in this paragraph. For my name's sake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my glory. These are all different ways of saying the same thing, of getting at the same reality. God says, I do what I do for the sake of my 
name. This is the radical truth that changes everything. Now, if a human being were to say this, I do what I do for the sake of my name, you would call that person what? Arrogant, self-centered, inflated, self-important, right? And you would be right to do so because there is no human for whom it is proper for them to advance and exalt their own name because they're human. But God is in a different category, right? The basic distinction that is fundamental to the Bible's understanding of the universe is the distinction between creation and creator. God is in a different category. God is holy. As Isaiah has been showing us, his favorite description of himself in the book of Isaiah is the holy one of Israel. The one who is other, who is exalted, who is eternal, who is self-existing who always has been and always will be. He alone is worthy of glory and praise and honor, and He is the source of all good. Every good gift comes from above, the Apostle James tells us. God is Himself the source of all good. He has all life and all goodness within Himself, and for that reason, it is right for God to be God-centered. It is right for God to care that His name would be seen as glorious, would be worshipped as majestic, would be honored and lifted up and valued and respected. And in fact, it is our greatest good that we say good about what is good. Did I lose you there? It's, our, it's for our advantage, it's to our good that we acknowledge God as the source of all good, as the one who is worthy of worship and praise and honor. And so God says, unashamedly, I do what I do for the sake of my name. And this is the key that unlocks all the riches of God's grace for us. This is the continental divide that changes where the waters of our soul flow toward. So let's reflect for a few minutes on the significance of a name. Think about your name. Your name is intentional, right? Your parents gave you the name that you have because they had some intention in mind. They impacted some meaning or some significance upon your life by giving you a name. Your name means something. Not only that, but your full name connects you to a heritage and to a history and to a family story and to a line of descent. Your name is what people call you. It's how you identify yourself in the world. If, I, if someone stood up right now and yelled your name, you would look in that direction instinctively because you recognize that they're speaking of me. They're talking to me. It would be fun to see what name we could yell out to make the most of you Pay attention. It'd probably be like Sarah. I think there's maybe like 17 Sarahs in Corumdale. So we could try that one. Or Nathan. There's a lot of Nathans. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is more to be desired than great riches. And so Proverbs understands there's value, there's significance in a good name. Your name says something about you. 
There are names in our city that we recognize as good names, right? Names that are honored, names that are honored in our city because they are names of people that have contributed to the good of the city. So when you hear names like Kiwit or Lead or Blumkin or Holland or Lauritsen, these are names that you recognize as benefactors, people who have used their private means to advance the public good of our city, and we rightly honor them for those contributions. There are buildings and institutions in our city named after these people. They have a Good name. By contrast, we also recognize there are names in our city that are very much not good names. Names we don't associate with blessing, but rather with judgment. Names like Nico Jenkins. A name that conjures up for many of us fear or concern or worry because he's one of the more notorious murderers in our city over the past few years. Names like that can inspire fear or concern. Uh, you may not know this, but Nico Jenkins himself is descended from a notorious family in Omaha known as the Leverings. A World Herald story I'm reading now, a World Herald examination of the Levering family history showed that 38 members of that family have been convicted of 633 crimes in Omaha since 1979 and have been involved in at least 150 other cases that did not result in jail time. Causing William Gallup, a defense attorney in our city, to say that family is notorious. The president of the Omaha Police Union says the Leverings are habitual lawbreakers. And so for this story, the Omaha World Herald called up one of Nico Jenkins' cousins who had moved to Texas, and she said the reason she moved there was to get away from the levering name which she called Tainted. She said, if my children grow up in the city of Omaha attached to that name, they will not have a future. Because that name means something negative in our city, so I went somewhere else. A name matters, doesn't it? A name has significance. A name can mark us for good or for ill. A name can open doors or shut doors. The power of a name is significant. I had the privilege of inheriting a good name in our city. My father was a pastor in this city for almost a quarter of a century, 22 years from 1982 until 2004, and he preached the Bible here and cared faithfully about the city, and I share his name. And to this day, that name opens doors for me. It creates a pathway of respect. I benefit from that good name that I did nothing to create, but merely inherited. This spring, you know, we were trying to purchased the former Temple Israel Synagogue, and we were meeting with city council members to try to talk about that decision. And I remember going in to meet with one particular city councilman, and I'd never met this person before, shook his hand, slid my business card across the table, said, hi, I'm Bob Thune. I'm the pastor of Coram Deo Church. He picked up that card and said, well, I don't think we've ever met before, but your name sounds familiar. 
And I said, well, you might be thinking of my father. He was a pastor here for many years. And he immediately smiled and said, I know your father. He's a man worthy of great respect. What can I do for you? That good name opened the door for me. A good name matters. What is associated and what your name connotes can bring blessing or cursing. And this is why throughout the Bible, God is jealous for His name. This is why throughout the Bible, God takes His name seriously. God commands in the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Which means more than, by the way, just dropping it offhandedly as a swear word. It also means living in a way that is not commensurate with the weight of that name. This is why the first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because God cares about the integrity of His name. God is very concerned and very jealous to protect and preserve and extend the knowledge of His name. And listen, here's what Isaiah wants you to see. God's commitment to His own name is the ground of His faithfulness to His people. Because God loves His name, He's faithful to His people. Because God cares about His reputation, He cares about us. This is incredibly good news. I want to take you back in the Bible a few books to 1 Samuel chapter 12, to a similar point in redemptive history where the prophet Samuel, not the prophet Isaiah, but Samuel is coming to God's people. He's confronted them about sin. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19, all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil. They're convicted of sin. They recognize they stand guilty before a holy God. Verse 20, and Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, for you have done all this evil. Notice what he did not say. He did not say, do not be afraid. God knows you didn't really mean it, that you had good intentions. He grades on a curve. He's not that concerned. He knows that you're just flawed, broken people, and you're doing the best you can. So don't be afraid. What he said is, don't be afraid. You have, in fact, done all this evil. You are correct in your assessment of yourself. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Do you hear there the same language that Isaiah uses to talk about idolatry? Empty They can't profit. They can't deliver. Don't turn after those things. Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. That's why God won't forsake his people. Despite their evil. For his great name's sake. God's commitment to his people is rooted in his commitment to his name and to his glory. And this is the continental divide that changes everything about how you see God and how you relate to God and how you experience God. 
In 1 Samuel 12 and in Isaiah 48, God is saying, I love you for the sake of my name. I chose you for the sake of my name. I'm restraining my anger and not cutting you off for the sake of my name. I will not let my name be profaned. I won't give my glory to another. I'm jealous for my name, and that's why I'm committed to your good. Here's why I say this is a continental divide in our thinking about God. Because this changes how you understand and experience the love of God. Let's ask this question. When do you tend to doubt God's love for you? Or if you want to ask it a different way, when do you tend to doubt that you're even a Christian? When do you tend to doubt the status of your relationship with God and God's interaction with you? It's usually not when you're doing awesome spiritually, right? It's not on your best day when you feel really alive toward God and you feel uh, a deep love toward other people and you're active in spiritual disciplines and you see victory over sin in your life. That's not when you doubt God's love for you. Rather, you tend to doubt God's love for you on your worst day, right? When you're doing less than awesome, spiritually speaking. When you're failing not even God's standard, but just your own standards for yourself. Maybe it's been weeks since you opened your Bible. And maybe you're struggling with that same besetting sin that you've struggled with for a long time. That's when you tend to doubt God's love for you. And here's what that reveals about the structure of the human heart. It reveals that our fundamental way of understanding God's love and relating to God is rooted in what the Bible calls works righteousness. Here's what that phrase means. Righteous, that phrase means. Righteousness is simply a word that speaks of being right with God. God being okay with me. And, and works is stuff that we do. So works righteousness is this disposition in us that tends to think God loves me, God accepts me, God's okay with me based on what I do or don't do. What I have done or haven't done. This is the fundamental structure of our hearts. And see, one of the major contrasts of the Bible is the contrast between works righteousness and faith righteousness, or you might call it gift righteousness, or grace righteousness. We see this contrast in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. So let's just build it out for a second. Here's what Paul says in Romans 4. Now, to the one who works, notice that phrase works, His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. All right, so if you go to your job tomorrow, and you put in 40 hours this week, and your boss comes to you next week, he's like, hey, we just want to give you a gift. We love you so much, here's a paycheck. You would say, lame gift. Where's the Christmas bonus, right? Because you would say, that's not a gift. I earned that money because I put in 40 hours of work. This is the contractual agreement that we have. I work, you pay me. That's what I earned. That's what I'm due. Okay? So Paul's saying, that's works righteousness. You do X, you get Y. Verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes, now catch this, believes in him who justifies the ungodly. 
His faith is counted as righteousness. That's faith righteousness. This is the difference. Work righteousness is you work, you do something, you earn something from God. Or you don't do something, therefore you don't earn something from God. Faith righteousness is I'm ungodly. I need to trust in one who justifies ungodly people. And that trust, that faith, is counted as righteousness. This is the major contrast in all of Scripture, the contrast between works righteousness and grace, faith righteousness. Now, it's one thing to know that this contrast exists. It's another thing to feel that God actually loves me. That I actually am delivered from God relating to me based on my performance. And that I've actually been ushered into the fullness of God loving me out of grace for the sake of Christ. So this is not just an intellectual distinction. I'm saying this needs to be an emotional existential distinction. What matters for us is not that we know about faith righteousness, but that we feel ourselves to be experiencers of the love of God through the grace of Christ. And what I'm saying to you is, the truth of Isaiah 48 is the continental divide in this scenario. Because what Isaiah is telling you is, God loves you, why? For His name's sake. God loves you because God loves Himself. God loves you because He loves the glory of His name. Therefore, God's love for you is not in any way contingent on your works, your performance, you earning or meriting His love. God loves you freely and fully, not because you're so great, but because He is jealous for the honor and the glory of His name. He loves you because as he said to Samuel, I will not forsake my people for the sake of my great name. The God-centeredness of God is massively good news for you and me because what it means is God loves us for his namesake. God loves sinful, flawed, foolish, rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people who struggle to obey for His namesake. God defers His anger from us. God does not cut us off for His namesake. God is faithful to His promises to His people for His namesake. On your worst day, why does God love you? For the sake of His name, that's why. On your best day, why does God love you? For the sake of His name, that's why. God loves you. God is faithful to you for the sake of His name. And listen to me. This is the key to getting off of the treadmill or the roller coaster of He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. I had a great day. I had a terrible day. It's been a good week. It's been a bad week. I feel close to God. I feel distant from God. If your sense of God's love for you varies with your emotional state or your circumstances, you've missed the truth of Isaiah 48. Because what Isaiah is telling you is God loves his people, even though they're foolish, for the sake of his great name. And that is why Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah. 
The good news of the gospel is that God, through Christ, gives us his name and therefore brings us into his love. So so connect the dots now with me to how Jesus fits all of this together. Because what Isaiah says is, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. And for the sake of my praise, I restrain it, that is my anger, so that I may not cut you off. What he's saying to his people is, what you deserve is to be cut off. You deserve judgment, you deserve condemnation because you've worshipped idols, your neck is an iron sinew, your forehead is brass, you're obstinate, from before birth you were a rebel, I ought to be done with you, but I'm not, for my name's sake. So who was cut off so that we could be accepted? Who, who Who bore God's anger so that he could defer it from us? Jesus did. And see, here's the beauty of the Christian understanding of God. Christians believe that God is triune because this is what the Bible teaches. That is, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's what that means. God is not some single, solitary deity up in the sky. God is a communion of three persons in one God. That means there is love within the Trinity before you and I ever existed. There's a relationship of mutual love and deference and respect and admiration that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have with one another. And God sent Jesus into the world for his name's sake. To bear his anger and wrath for his name's sake. So that he could adopt a people for his name's sake and save them eternally for his name's sake. Jesus, in John chapter 17, is praying to the Father. This is before he goes to the cross, after the Last Supper with his disciples, and listen to what Jesus says to the Father. Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I made known to them your name. That's what Jesus came to do, to make known, to manifest, to make clear the Father's name, which is his glory, his fullness, everything we need to know about him. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I came into the world, Father, to make your name known, to reveal your glory to the people you've chosen so that the love with which you've loved me might be in them, so that they might be caught up into this great fellowship of love that's marked our relationship since eternity past, so that they might know for the sake of your name, your love for me. Jesus came so that you and I might be invited into the very love that the Father has for the Son. God is jealous for the sake of His name. He will be faithful to His people for the sake of His name. He has chosen and saved you if you are in Christ for the sake of His name. And He loves you not for your sake, but for the sake of His name. And this is why His love doesn't change. This is why it's always present, always consistent, always there, and not contingent or dependent on your circumstances. So listen to me. If you're not yet a Christian here this morning, God is inviting you to be renamed. That's what conversion is. That's what coming to faith in Jesus Christ is. It's the moment when you stop living for the glory and the fame of your name, and you 
embrace the fullness and the reality of the glory of God's name. In fact, he gives you his name. He calls you Christian, little Christ. He says, this name that I've given to my son, I want to extend that to you. I want to bring you into this family. I want to mark you with my name. And so in baptism, you are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is a naming ceremony in which you are renamed. And you're literally dead and resurrected with Christ. I said literally in the way that our culture uses it, didn't I? What I mean is, you are spiritually dead and resurrected with Christ. In the way that Christ literally died and was resurrected. You are identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. You get a new name. You you get renamed Christian. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You're one of God's people. And and therefore, you stop living for your name and start living for his. And, And listen, God's saying to you, for the sake of my name, I'm inviting you into that. It's not based on who you are, where you've been, whether your name is Holland or Levering. You're invited into my family. You're invited to be renamed. What it takes is bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Being willing to receive that name. Being willing to enter into that family and that love. If you're a baptized, repentant Christian here this morning, God wants to assure you he loves you for his namesake. He's faithful to you for his namesake. His love for you is not contingent on, not based on, not fluctuating because of your obedience and disobedience, your faithfulness or lack of faithfulness, but rather, He loves you for His namesake. He wants you to know the richness of that, the depth of that, the fullness of that, so that you can be delivered from relating to God based on your works and be ushered into a life of faith that rests in God's pursuit of his own glory, and his love for his name. God loves you. God loves me for his name's sake. And that is wonderful good news. Let's pray this morning. So God, we celebrate the good news, the gospel truth, that for your name's sake you act. That your glory you will not give to another. And Father, I pray that this massive truth, this this weighty central reality in Isaiah 48 would just sink deeply into our souls. Would you help us see this as a truth, the continental divide. It just is true about how you act and who you are. And once we recognize it as true, once we reckon with the truthfulness of it and begin to understand it, the waters of our soul increasingly begin to flow toward joy and freedom and life and happiness and satisfaction because of your love for your own glory. So thank you that your love for us is not based on our name, but it's based on yours. Thanks that it doesn't matter whether we have a good name or a bad name, but that you invite all kinds of people to be renamed and marked with the name of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you provided us a way in to be adopted into God's family, to be renamed and given a new story and a new history and a new purpose. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that through the prophet Isaiah, you make clear to us All of this, all that you've been doing since the beginning of time is for the sake of your great name.
So God, would you help us now to be moved to deeper worship of your name, to walk out of here with a deeper resolve and desire to live in ways that honor your name, and with a deeper confidence that even when we do not, you love us for the sake of your name. Usher us into the freedom and the joy and the peace that you do all that you do for the sake of your name. And we pray in your name. Amen.